All right, well, here we are, back in Genesis. Back to Genesis. Chapter 41. I want to read from verse 41 through the end of the chapter. And then, Lord willing, we'll move on to chapter 42 next Sunday. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath Peniah, and gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in all the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is the Word of God. And Lord, as we read Your Word and consider it, we know that it's spiritually discerned, so give us of Your Spirit. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe. And give us joy to walk in your ways, to be encouraged, to be exhorted. Your word is truth. Joseph gave bread, but you, O Jesus, give the bread of life to your people. We feed upon that greatest of bread, that greatest of food. We would hunger and thirst for righteousness all the more because we long for you, O Jesus. We long for much of the Spirit. So teach us, exhort us, help us to be equipped for every good work. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, when I was a teenager and my father asked me to do something, my response was often, wait, hold on, Dad, I'll get around to it sometime. Of course, trying to delay my obedience. You know, maybe if he waited long enough, he'd forget about the matter. Or maybe he asked one of my brothers or sisters to do it. Or maybe he would just do it himself, right? But he would invariably say to me, Son, wait broke the wagon down. Anyone hear that expression? He was a, he was a country boy from Pennsylvania farm country, and he had some strange sayings. But you've heard it too. So I was wrong, of course, in, in really disobeying by not obeying him straight away. But yet God often tells us, Wait, like Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Waiting is difficult though, right? Especially in these days when we get so much so quickly, we often don't have to wait. We have microwave dinners ready in minutes. We have fast food. Ever thought about that title? Fat, not bad food, not junk food, fast food. In other words, what? No waiting. You get it in moments. We have overnight shipping, same-day shipping even. It's crazy. 24-hour news and weather. No, don't have to wait for that 6 o'clock news or 11 o'clock news. It's just there anytime you want it. We have instant messaging. Right? We have Google Internet searches. What's that mean? Info, info in a split second. Remember, some of us remember, you'd have to drive to the library, go through that giant card catalog, search through all the boxes, then go to the books, look up the books, and then, and then scour the books. It would take hours and hours. Now just Google, right there, 7,000 hits, or whatever it is, right? It's amazing. We, when we were traveling away from home, or just wherever, out shopping, we had to make a phone call. Had to search for a payphone. Where's the payphone? Got to wait to find a payphone. Now it's, hey Siri, call Barbara. <laughs> and bang, you don't have to dial the phone anymore. You know, our lives move in 78 speed these days, except the Lord has not yet come into the high-speed world of the 21st century. He still says, wait. Wait for the Lord. From Joseph's dreams to the fulfillment were 13. 13 years, 13 years of struggle, 13 years of suffering, 13 years of waiting. And so though God often tells his people, wait, he will always keep his promise. He will always fulfill his word, always. And for Joseph, that begins here. Remember back in chapter 37 where we started, God gave Joseph two dreams. The first one, he said, we were binding sheaves in the field, and my sheaf arose and stood uprightly, and your sheaves to his brothers, they bowed down to my sheaf. Meaning, of course, that he would someday be exalted over his brothers. But he had a second dream, and the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to him, right? Meaning that even his father and his mother, and all of his brothers, including Benjamin, 
who wasn't there to begin with in the first dream, they would all bow down to the ground before Joseph, who was standing as their ruler or their superior. Outrageous, really, in a patriarchal society, if you think about it. And the first dream is fulfilled in the next chapter in 42, verse 6. Look how exactly the second part. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. The second dream will be fulfilled a little bit later. But they were fulfilled because the Lord moved in Pharaoh's heart, this pagan king of Egypt. God moved in his heart to listen to Joseph and to exalt him as the second ruler over all of Egypt, which happens here. I want you to notice the complete reversal of Joseph's circumstances. He had just been dressed in these presumably nasty prison clothes, dirty, grungy, holy, okay, with a W-H, not a not beginning with an H. And now Pharaoh gives him his ring and his gold chain and he clothes him in these garments of fine linen. Or you remember, of course, he lost previously years ago his, this special robe he got from his father. And now he's dressed in the garments of Egyptian rule. No longer locked up in prison. Now he rides in chariot too. Right, their version, I suppose, of Air Force too. Once falsely accused, mocked, no doubt, and laughed at, scorned. Now his servants commanded all people everywhere in Joseph's presence to bow before him and to proclaim him as the great ruler, give him the honor that he deserved as Lord of Egypt. And no longer powerless and subject to the evil manipulations of others. Now he had tremendous power. Pharaoh said, all my people shall order themselves as you command. He had just been in prison. Just been locked up in chains. Think about how he had lost his family. His father and his mother and his brothers. His mother had long ago died. But anyway, uh, he had lost his family. But now he's given a wife who bears him two sons. God kept his promise. In fact, notice how the chapter ends. All the earth came to Joseph to buy grain. All the earth comes to bow down before him as the ruler and, and really the provider and the giver of life. The one who could, has the power to keep them alive. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. God's word is being fulfilled exactly as he revealed in Joseph's dreams and in Pharaoh's dreams. There were seven years of abundance, exactly as revealed in Pharaoh's dreams, followed by seven years of famine, exactly as Joseph had interpreted these dreams. Seven years followed by seven years. You know, while prophecy is mainly forthtelling, we sometimes call it that, meaning it's declaring God's word to his people and to the nations. It is sometimes, as you know, also foretelling, declaring what will happen, what hasn't yet happened, but what will happen sometime in the future. It's primarily foretelling, but sometimes also foretelling. But it's never foretelling merely to satisfy our curiosities about the future, right? 
We'd love to know what happens tomorrow or next year or next decade. But it's not just satisfying our curiosity, okay? It's not that. God wants his people to know and to be certain that he is the one. He is the almighty one behind all these events. The prophet says, new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. We as his people can wait patiently because he proves that he does exactly as he declared. He does as he promised. Now, besides the fact that these years of abundance and famine were exactly as God said, notice, and I emphasized this a moment ago, notice that each period of years was seven years. That should put a little light up in your brain. Seven years. Interesting. The number seven occurs in Scripture over 700 times. And if you add the word seventh, and sevenfold, those words occur 860 times. Now, I spent the time this week counting every single one. No, I didn't. I said, Google, bang, I got it right there in a split second because I didn't want to wait for it. Well, the word seven has meaning, has significance. It means completeness or perfection, okay? I believe it's found in the perfection of creation, which took place in seven days, including God's Sabbath. The Bible says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was, what? Very good. In other words, it was perfect. It was complete. It was whole. It pleased God. And so that these, that these periods were both seven years strengthens our confidence, or it should, that God was indeed behind these events to bring to pass and to accomplish exactly what he had determined should be accomplished. Seven years of prosperity and seven years of famine. But notice one more thing, one more number. Notice that Joseph was 30 years old when he became governor to me, another light clicks on. Because I start thinking, wait a minute. First of all, there's only two other times in all these chapters we're given Joseph's age. One, at the very beginning, when the Bible makes this delineation, this break, uh, showing its division, these are the generations of Jacob. We're told that Joseph was, what, 17 years old. Then, he's, then we're told at the end of his life, he was 110 years old when he died. And the only time, the only other time we're given his age throughout all those years from 17 to 110 was right now when he became governor at 30 years old. So I ask self, why is that? I'm kind of a curious guy, okay? I look at Scripture, I want to know why. Why at this point? Well, one reason might be it tells us how long it was between Joseph's dreams and God's promise and the fulfillment, okay, or his exaltation, which was the fulfillment. It was 13 years. Not a short time, but not forever either, okay? And while we indeed may have to wait for a period of time, this story helps us understand that 
we won't have to wait forever. Not for the things that God has promised. Because God will always fulfill His promise. His Word does not ever fail. And so you can be patient. You can maintain your hope and your confidence in difficult times because God's Word is sure. Yet, I think there's more to it than that. Okay? Because we are told that Joseph was 30 years old. He wasn't 28. He wasn't 29. He wasn't 32. He wasn't 36. He was 30. And I started thinking, wait a minute. I remember that David was 30 years old when he became king over all Israel. Well, that's kind of interesting. Then I started thinking, no, wait a minute. The Levites were 30 years old when they were able to become, when they were able to start their priestly ministry in the temple. Not until, they could have been, they were Levites from birth, but they didn't start the ministry until they were 30 years old. And then I think, well, most significantly, wait a minute. Jesus himself was baptized and began his ministry when? Luke says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. And he was 30. Why? Because that's when a priest began his priestly intercession. Now, Matthew's record of our Lord's baptism includes originally when Jesus came to, Ma- to, to John to be baptized, Matthew records that John said, wait a minute, hold on just a minute. Why are you coming to me? I need to be baptized by you. It's like, I'm the sinner here. What's going on? My baptism is a baptism of repentance. Why are you coming to me? And Jesus replied to that. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That quickly, John said, oh, good. And he baptized him. What's that about? Okay. Thus, uh, let it be so now. When's now? Jesus was 30 years old. John was six months older. John was also 30 years old, right? So Jesus was 30 years of old. And when he says to fulfill all righteousness, that means adherence to Old Testament law, to all the Mosaic laws and so forth, okay? Thus, his baptism... Okay, in the Old Testament law, one priest who was what? John. John was the son of a priest, therefore a priest. One priest was to ordain, to set apart by baptism, another priest who was entering his priestly ministry at age 30. You see what's going on? Jesus' baptism by John at age 30 was his entering into his priestly ministry. Not, of course, as a Levite. But Hebrews tells us as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So could God be confirming to us, even though this happened before all that, but we look back and we have the whole word of God, could God be confirming to us that Joseph was at this time, at age 30, beginning his God-ordained ministry? And yes, I think that's what's going on, because that was his calling. I've mentioned to you a couple times Psalm 105 He, the Lord, had sent a man ahead of them, ahead of Israel, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Joseph was sent ahead of Israel by God for this very purpose, all right? To be God's minister to save Israel and indeed the world. 
Joseph's suffering, Joseph's difficulties, all the accusations, all the criticism, etc., etc., would be redeemed in a most powerful and profound way. And so these numbers, I think, help us be certain that God was behind these events, as He is behind all the events in your life and in mine. We as Presbyterians, we rightly believe in the sovereignty of God. Just quickly, just one little section from our Confession of Faith. God, the Creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. God is sovereign. But again, it's not some impersonal force that directs all of the details of your life. Who is it? It's your Father who is in heaven, who gave his own son for your salvation, who loves you beyond what you can ever imagine, what you'll ever know. It's your Father who is working out all things together for good. So this assurance should give us peace and a contentment. And yes, even a satisfaction so that we can say, it is well with my soul. Let's go back to Joseph's family. During the years of prosperity, those seven years, we're told specifically before the famine came. So during those years of abundance, Joseph's wife gave him two sons. The firstborn he called Manasseh, and the second son he named Ephraim. Okay, now these names are significant because they reveal something important about Joseph's thinking, about Joseph's theology. What was going on in Joseph's mind during those days? In other words, they give us insight into what, was, what Joseph was thinking and how he understood, how he now interpreted everything that had gone on for the previous 13 years. All those events that led him to the fulfillment of God's promise. Now, most names in the Bible are chosen because of what the names mean, and these are among those. Manasseh means making to forget. And so Joseph named his first son Manasseh. He said, for God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name Ephraim means double fruitfulness. And he said, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So it's very clear that Joseph was interpreting God's providence. Namely, God had made him forget the past, and God had made, and God had made him fruitful in the present. Okay, we understand that second part, God had made him fruitful, okay? But forgetting the past, Joseph, really? I mean, how do you forget those 13 years, the betrayal, the accusation, the pit? How, won't those things be seared into your brain? Yes. Joseph could never forget those things. Jim Boyce, Dr. Boyce, explains what's going on. He meant that God had healed his wounds, suffered as a result of past abuses and disappointments, and had made his life fruitful. 
Dr. Boyce continues, I have known people, I'm sure you have too, who have been so obsessed with disappointments or slates that their whole life is so warped by them and they are greatly hindered from living a fruitful life now. They have not allowed God to heal them. And so what Joseph is saying is, it's okay. All those things that happened to me, it's okay. Not that they were good. No, bad things happen to God's people, and they're still bad. They're always bad, okay? But God works through them to bring good. God redeems those bad things for your good. And that's what Joseph was saying. He now saw the good God purposed to bring through the trials he endured. And that good was more important to Joseph than all the suffering he endured for all those years. That good was his ultimate joy and delight. We see that in the name of Ephraim, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. It's interesting. Notice he calls Egypt both the land of his affliction and the land of his fruitfulness. Isn't that amazing? It was both affliction and fruitfulness. Joseph could experience evil and yet have peace and even be glad because he knew God is sovereign and he knew that God causes all things to work together for good because God is always loving toward his children. Think about the irony of Joseph naming his firstborn son, making me forget. Every time he calls his son, making me to forget, he's remembering what he's supposed to be forgetting. Well, one one expositor explains what's going on. What Joseph did by naming his son Manasseh was to reshape the past by putting it into the context of what God was doing in his life. His son became a permanent testimony to God's power to redeem the past. Of course, Joseph could never completely forget his experiences of hardship at the hands of his brothers or in Egypt. However, from then on, he would remember it through the lens of God's presence with him in his pain and God's faithfulness in ultimately bringing him through that suffering into prosperity. Beautiful, is it not? That's why Paul could write about learning contentment in whatever circumstances I'm in, even adversity, even difficulty. How did he learn contentment in difficulty? in adverse circumstances, by learning like Joseph that God was in those circumstances to bring good, and that good was Paul's and Joseph's chief desire. That's why Paul could rejoice while in prison. That's why he could say, give thanks in everything, because he approached every circumstance with faith in God, knowing that God is in this for his good and for his glory. And God's providence then became the best thing at that particular moment and on that particular occasion. That, beloved, is the key to waiting 
patiently. That is the key to having peace when you're struggling, knowing that God keeps His promises and God has promised you, if you're His child, God has promised you good. Not because you are good. Oh, she may try to buy a stairway to heaven, but it's not going to work out. I mentioned the great reversal Joseph experienced, okay? Well, the greatest reversal, one that we can participate in, was secured many years ago. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. As always, Joseph points to Jesus. The, the, the certainty of Joseph's fruitfulness, or excuse me, the reality of Joseph's fruitfulness following his suffering points to the certainty of Jesus' fruitfulness following his suffering, his humiliation. But Jesus was exalted not to be number two, not to ride in chariot two, but to be what? King over all, Lord over all, ruler over all, preeminent over all things. And he is God's minister to save the nations. Because the antitype always surpasses the type. Jesus' fruitfulness means that the world is coming to, to him. Yes, President Modi might say, no Christians in India. But God, Jesus is building his church and people are coming headlong fast into the church by the thousands, beloved. They are being converted. He will not be able to stop that. Because Jesus is king, not Modi. Amen? And his people will be a great multitude that no one can number, we read in Revelation, from every nation and tribe and people group. From everywhere, Jesus is building his church. But those who refuse to bow before him, those who refuse the bread that only he can bring, that only he can give, they will die in the famine. Because there is a famine throughout the lands, a famine for those who don't know Jesus. But all who come to him for bread will survive. And the food he gives... Well, Joseph sold the food, but guess what? The food that Jesus gives without cost, right? Because he himself paid the price. Isaiah cried out, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for, th for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. You see, Jesus, the fruitful one, will make you fruitful in the land of your affliction now, even now. Furthermore, He has promised to bring you to His eternal homeland where you also will be exalted. A place where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more sin. No more false religion. This is God's promise. 
for which we now wait. And Paul wrote, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Sure, some mock and say, where is the promise of his coming? But what's the key word there? Promise. Where is the promise of his coming? Yes, if God has promised, he will fulfill his word. And Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. When Jesus returns, we will experience the final promise kept. The fullness of the great reversal. And so now as believers, we walk by faith and we don't lose heart because we know, as Paul said, this slight momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It won't even matter. You will forget it all. It doesn't matter. You say, yes, Lord, it was all just as it ought to be. God will redeem our struggles and sufferings and losses and bring us to his own home. We have the promise of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Knowing this, dear ones, is it not well with your soul? Indeed it is. Lord God, What news this is. What a Savior this is. What a friend of sinners. May you be exalted through our patient waiting and our walking by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.